Welcome to the Strategy and Leadership Podcast brought to you by SME Strategy. Our goal on the Strategy and Leadership Podcast is to bring you practical and actionable tools that you can implement with your teams right away. My name is Anthony Taylor and I'll be your host. Each episode, I'll interview a senior leader or a thought leader that will help you elevate your ability to lead people and drive your organization's strategy forward. Our partner is Cascade Strategy. They're our favorite tool for tracking and executing strategic plans, providing visibility for your entire team, and helping everybody have insight into where you're going and what you need to do to get there. If you're looking to improve your strategy execution, visit smestrategy.net slash cascade for a link for a free 90-day trial so you can see for yourself if you enjoy it and it helps your team move forward. So with that, I want to thank you again for joining us, and we'll get into today's guest. Well, I appreciate you being here. Bina is the CEO and co-founder of Vested. Bina, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about you and your background and, and how you ended up getting to where you are, and then we'll we'll go from there. Yeah, sure. So yeah, I'm uh, one of the co-founders and the president of Vested. We're an integrated agency focused on financial services and, and fintech. We started the agency about over five years ago now, which is pretty crazy if you think about it. But we started it after we had our Jerry Maguire moment up and quit the last agency we were running to start a firm that we really believed in. Um, and I actually have spent the most of my career in marketing and communications for financial services before that I wanted to be a journalist, but I, I gave up on that pretty quickly. Hmm. That's a little bit about me. Cool. So there's so many things I want to ask you and it's just, there's women, there's fintech, there's yeah. like, we can talk about cryptocurrency. I don't even want to go there. We can talk but... about anything. Yeah. Okay. Let's start with fintech. What are you seeing sure. in the five years that you've begun this company? Like, what are you seeing now? And, and how is that sort of affecting the world? And then we'll. Sure. I've been fortunate to be working with financial technology companies for the majority of my career, even before fintech was really a word that your average consumer would know. About probably more than five years ago now, you started to see these upstarts coming in, coming into the industry. So Betterment and the robo advisory space, Robinhood with with training, and others, and um, they came up as challenger brands, right? We're disrupting the the status quo, the unbank, for example, or the anti bank, and that gave them a foothold in what has otherwise been a pretty challenging industry to break into in financial services, which is dominated by the large powerhouses. What happened over the last five years and probably longer is a convergence. So the challenger brands, as they grew market share and revenue and user bases, they have to start being more mature. They have to see more grown up. And at the same time, the big brands, so Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, you know, et cetera, et cetera, they needed to feel more disruptive. They need to feel more innovative. And they did that by either acquiring FinTech. So Goldman Sachs Marcus is a great example of that. Even the acquisition of E-Trade, for example, by, by Morgan Stanley. Like all of these are good examples of how these two forces are coming together. And what that means is we're going to see increasing acquisition. So more startups being acquired by the big players. And at the same time, more significant investments by the traditional financial services firms to build or buy technology divisions that allow them to play more strongly in the space. Hmm. 
And how was it like being a female-led team in an innovative space that has sort of the, we'll call it parallel, that there's these big established things and then mm. the smaller company like setting that up? I'd like to say it was easy. I will say that I think part of the reason why I started Fasted was, one, I wanted to be a good example of being a female entrepreneur in this space and also to create a more inclusive environment, not just of women, but I think just a more diverse and inclusive environment overall, which sometimes, whether you look at the agency space or financial services and fintech, it's not always very well known for diversity and inclusion. And I think one, being a female entrepreneur gives me a really good perspective, I hope. But also, I think the ability to help our brands better shape their messages to be more diverse and inclusive, I think that's pretty important. And it hasn't always been easy because sometimes, you know, you get the sense that maybe, you know, if you're talking to like a fintech founder, that maybe he's not taking you as seriously if, you know, it was coming from someone who was high. But also, I think just in terms of chatting to female-led technology firms, I mean, you know, they have said a lot that it's harder to get funding sometimes if you're a female founder. VCs sometimes, for whatever reason, don't take you as seriously. It, it's sometimes unconscious bias. Sometimes it's not like deliberate bias, but unconscious bias that might lead them to ask different questions or to put greater merit in certain ideas more than others just because of the gender of the person they're chatting to. So while I think things have changed for the better, I still think there's a lot of room to grow in our yeah. industry. And I think in all industries, like, uh, so as part of my run SME strategy, I, I got placed as a fellow in this organization called Athena out of San Diego. And they have a mission to empower a million or advance a million women in STEM. And what was interesting is they're advocating this. The, ironically, it's the big banks that are saying, we won't invest in you unless you have something close to parity or 40% of women on boards. So does that impact how your sort of internal mission or, or how you communicate with people, how you support them by saying, hey, this parity, this diversity, and not just women, obviously, like gender, non-gender, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Does that change your strategy? Is it heart of strategy? How do you approach those conversations with the people that you're working with? We really encourage our clients to have a point of view and to put action behind their DEI initiatives. And I think whether it's, you know, we're not going to invest in companies unless their board demonstrates stronger diversity, or it could be looking at how they recruit or how they employ people, making sure that the products and services that they're selling or marketing are being marketed more inclusively. I think all of that is really important. And I think these bold statements by brands is important because I think it almost creates stronger pressure on the brands that haven't taken those actions to do so. It turns the spotlight on the people who aren't doing anything. And I actually think that's been really beneficial. I think any action is important. The thing that we counsel our, our clients on is like, I don't want you to just put out rhetoric. It's really easy to just say a whole bunch of stuff that might make you feel better about you know having a point of view or that you're doing something but you aren't doing something unless you action it and change doesn't happen overnight you know i think during the height of i think civil unrest and in, in 2020 and honestly that never stops i think especially when a lot of protests were happening around the country i think a lot of you know brands attempted to just put out statements right put out an instagram post put out a tweet put out an email and make people feel like we are there for you. 
But if it's not followed by action, it's empty. It's worse because I don't want people to feel deluded by the idea that as long as I put out a statement, I've done something. No, it's got to be followed by true action, monetary commitment, um, accountability. And so I've been really excited by the change that we've seen so far, but there is certainly a lot more, a lot more room to grow. Yeah. Well, I find it interesting. I mean, being somebody who works in PR and talking about earned media, you can spin that story however you want. But I think the sophisticated people, they're going to smell the, the bullshit pretty fast and you're not going to get like a bang for your buck. And I also, I mean, again, as a corollary to the overall banking market is that you have so much competition in something that's been commoditized. So how can you create that that differentiation and then from like a blue ocean red ocean strategy eventually that differentiation is no longer going to be differentiation it's going to be commonplace so i guess my question is how do you see that transition going and what do you see coming down the road in all of those things that's a big question <laughs> <laughs> so how can folks differentiate themselves further in this type of an environment i guess so there's so many different pieces to it that go beyond just the PR part, because mm. from a PR part, you're just reporting and amplifying people's good stuff. Right. And, right. and so I guess it sort of predicates that they're doing good stuff before you can actually help them. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. You know, I think it's an interesting time to be in the space because I think I don't know if you saw this news, but like injuries in Horowitz, for example, caused some headlines yesterday because uh, they are planning to build out their own media brand. And there are so many different ways now in which brands can communicate their stories. It's not even through traditional PR. You know, they're kind of, you know, the idea of, you know, being your own journalist, self-publishing, communicating directly and circumventing the media is probably going to continue to be a bigger and bigger trend, which is a little sad for journalism, to be honest. But I think part of the rise of social media, the ability for brands to attract customers directly onto their platforms means when there's more competition for messaging, also our lives are the channels in which people can communicate to us as a customer or consumer have only proliferated plus a ton of data about us now. So they vary that message really significantly based on who I am and what I want to consume. So I think you could look at it as like if you're a PR person or a marketer, you have never had more opportunity to, to get stuff done on behalf of the clients. But it also means that you can't just take one message and blast it out to a whole bunch of people via press releases and ads and hope that it sticks. I think as consumers, we are expecting personalization that you're going to know me better than maybe I even know myself. You know, I was joking with my team the other day, like you can go on your Instagram feed, for example, and you can actually check out your account and see what your Instagram has profiled you as, you know, based on what types of ads are servicing to you. And you're like, wow, how do you know me so well? Same thing with Netflix, right? I bet when you open up your Netflix, the content that it's pushing to you is totally different than what's being pushed to me. And I think that whether you call it marketing or brand or advertising, whatever it might be, I think it's a huge opportunity and the change that we're going to see and how brands communicate and market themselves over the next decade are going to be revolutionary. Within that, and especially within the FinTech space, 
outside of the sort of core marketing part, you know, what are you seeing from your clients without giving away anybody's like secret sauce or anything like totally, that? Yeah. Are you seeing it's the personalization that's moving and seeing it's like the decentralization? Are you seeing, you know, smaller organizations supporting? Like what are, what are the trends that you're seeing in that world? Yeah, I think in FinTech, I think what's happening is one, more and more fintechs are having to move upstream. And the reason for that is if you've been a fintech that's been around for a few years now, right? You're past your, let's say your series A and your series B, and you're either angling for an IPO or acquisition, or obviously a huge next step in your growth. And I, I alluded to this at the beginning is you have to grow true share of wallet, right? It, it can't come from just like the number of free accounts that people have, but actually like where are the dollars being made amongst your customers? And those tend to be customers with larger portfolios, larger wallets are either paying for a more premium service. But those people, the more affluent you get, right? Whether you're someone who's saving or spending or you're investing, whatever your FinTech proposition might be, we're now talking about people who have more wealth in some capacity. And if you are a wealthy person or you are wealthy or you're someone who's coming into more and more wealth just because you've been earning for a longer period of time, you want to know that your finances are in a good place, right? Like, for example, for you, this is a personal question, but like, where do you bank? Today? I bank at Royal Bank of Canada. Okay. Canada. Um, have you ever been tempted to try out like a challenger bank? or like a neo bank or like some upstart bank that doesn't have like a branch down the street. Uh, I was with, well, Tangerine used to be ING Direct uh -huh. for a little bit. Uh -huh. And then I've yeah. done some, uh, hopefully nobody just like starts cracking on my password. And then I had like a, like a, like a wealth simple account to be like, okay, let's see how this right. goes. And then I invest with a, a financial advisor. Right, right. So you're probably, you're someone who's in the now. And if I ask my team, my team is largely like people who are younger in their twenties. Like when I go around the room and I say, who do you bank with? Wells Fargo, Bank of America. And I say, you, we are like avid supporters of FinTech, but yet everybody is still working with the Bank of America's and the Wells Fargo's of the world. And why is that? There is still a trust factor that you have, that there is an institution where you've put your money and when like, <laughs> If we are facing a zombie apocalypse, there is some comfort in knowing I can maybe head to the branch and still get my money out versus it being online somewhere that you can't see. And that's just like a human instinct, right? It's this idea that like it's somewhere safe. As a result, I think fintechs are trying to create that safety for their customers. You're actually seeing more of that with people opening up branches or offices that people can walk into. And I think you see that not just in fintech, but overall, like traditional online providers opening up physical space because of physicality is what creates comfort that there's a there's a place that I can go to. And so more and more fintechs are now starting to look a bit more like the traditional financial institution with offices, humans that you can talk to, speaking a more mature language than what was originally five years ago all about like you know we're fighting the financial services industry now it's actually no we're safe we can work with you whether you're 20 or 30 40 50 they're going for the retirees so that's really starting to change how these fintechs are marketing themselves hmm. so we talked about trust we talked about mm -hmm. the personalization we talked about that like physicality and like mm -hmm. the that shifting gears and now putting you on the hot seat. Totally. And 
How has that been as a founder, as a female founder? How was the the process of building trust? You know, what did what would, what did you take away, or what were some of those lessons learned as as a female leader as you started this company, attracted people, obviously built like a reasonable, like a good sized company with a lot of people. You know, what was that process, and what were some of those key learnings that you learned as a owner and as well as a as a female founder? Which I hate using the term, but you understand for the context <laughs> why I'm asking you the question. Yeah, it's a great question. I'm a pretty big believer in authenticity. And I think trust is built, especially when you're new, right? No one knows no one knows you really, but they have to see that you've got follow through. So it's not just what you say, but that you live that every day. And when we were building a team, when we were like no people, we were building a team, we had a vision and we had values. But no one would trust us if when they experienced our culture or workplace, how we work with our clients, if what we did was the opposite of what we said. And so I'm a strong believer in flat management entrepreneurship that doesn't matter where you came from, how old you are, you know, whether you have more experience than another person, I believe everybody has an equal right to have an opinion and a point of view. And we live that every day. That's part of, I mean, we're called vested because everybody is vested in the company and i think if i said that to people but when they walked in the door they didn't feel like they had a point of view they didn't feel vested they didn't feel like they had a seat at the table i lose that trust pretty quickly Mm -hmm. and i think we have to then spread those values throughout the organization so even beyond just the founders that if our clients are dealing with one of our besties as we call them they have to also feel that too so trust is built through authenticity And I think for any fintech brand out there, I think authenticity is more critical than ever because people are going to call you out the moment you step afoul of that. When they go, you said this on your website, but when I see this, that's not true. You are not being true to who you are as a brand. And so I think whether as a woman that makes me better able to be authentic, I'm not sure about that. Maybe. I think it certainly helps me be more empathetic, but I think even as a founder for any founder, I think sticking to your values, being authentic to to the vision and living that each and every day and allowing people to hold you accountable to that is really important. Hmm. That's interesting. And so I find it, I'm sort of balancing with, you know, we have people live, there's people going to watch on YouTube, people listening on our podcast and actually from all over the world. I know already Sudan and Nigeria, and I have no idea what time it is for you, like joining <laughs> in the conversation. Yeah. But it's interesting, like the intercultural differences between, you know, trust, relationship building. And I believe that from what you shared, that trust, authenticity, and like follow through is key no matter where you are, because the power has shifted from the company to like the consumer, like consumers have this wealth of knowledge they can access anytime and they can like sniff you out fast. Have you found that uh, that a challenge is growing a company in and you're founded in New York, correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Have you found that, you know, that authenticity being a tool for you to grow to, I think you're at 50 people. Is that right? Yeah, we're actually more than that now. I think we're close to like 80 or 90. Oh, damn. All right. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah. So how how have you found that playing out as you've, have you grown your company and and how like sort of the ripple effect of that has done in what I would consider a, a tight community. I was there for a little while, so I know a bit about it, but not much. Yeah, you know, I think it's healthy and painful sometimes. And what I mean by that is, I think as a founder, and I think if any founders are listening, you probably feel this as you wake up every day, 
with sometimes um, a crisis of confidence, but also like, you know, are we doing this right? Have we gone afoul of our original vision? And I think as you get bigger and bigger, the feeling of dilution is very real, right? <laughs> the dilution of equity, but like dilution of culture and the core, right? How do you keep preserving that as you grow? And so when people call you out on that, right? They said, you said this. Actually, I, I felt this way. It is really hard because some part of you wants to go, no, that's not right. You know, what we founded is what we created. But I also think it's really healthy because you need people to hold you accountable. It's, it's, it's the way you stay on path is on the people around you, especially people you trust, are able to say, guys, we're starting to veer off in this direction, but we need to get back on track. Like you need those people in your life. And I think as founders, one of the most critical things for success is not just that you've got great co-founders and not every founder is lucky enough to have partners like I do, but to also have a really great leadership team. And that that leadership team shares the same values, but also holds you accountable to staying on track. Like where I see a lot of fintechs go awry is when they don't have good leadership teams that don't have that level of accountability and they're yes men. And if you have a leadership team who are just yes men and just nod to you and tell you that whatever you say is right, you've already gone wrong. And so I think it's really important that you've got people around you who are willing to tell you, no, you're wrong and we can do better. Yep. And I want to especially highlight that for the people that are in like nonprofit organizations mm -hmm. is because you have even less incentive for conflict, isn't it? So much easier to be a yes person in a not for profit because you don't have anything at stake for you and your employees. You know, it's your money. It's your future. When you're like a volunteer mm -hmm. on a board, despite being sort of financially taxation, it's a lot easier to avoid those conversations because you're like, eh, it'll sort itself out. Like, are you on any boards or, or support any not-for-profits in your in your spare time? <laughs> I do. So um, I support this actually really great nonprofit who I was chatting with just before I, I jumped on this call, which is uh, an association focused on the Asian American community and investment management. And a lot of what they're trying to do is raise greater awareness, sometimes the lack of leadership opportunities and investment opportunities that exist for Asian American and Pacific Islander fund managers. Mm -hmm. And so about greater representation for them, especially given the, the DNI conversation continues to happen within financial services. I think what they do is really great. And then I also am a part of Chief, which is a women's executive network. And I, I found that it's great because I get to connect with other female founders and female executives and, and chat about issues from workplace culture, being a working mom to, to much, much more. So, and then Vested, we support a number of nonprofits as well. So we support this really great organization called Five One Labs, which is an accelerator for refugees out in uh, the Middle East. And we also support the Museum of American Finance, which is a nonprofit and the only finance museum in the United States. So we also support a number of uh, pro bono causes as well. That is awesome. I, I mean, I think it's important to have that corporate responsibility part of it, especially if mm -hmm. you've got a model. You know, just before this call, I was listening to Chris Hadfield, who is a Canadian astronaut, and he was saying to expand and bring as much of your team. And then as you expand your sort of human experience, that it's not your duty, but like to be able to pass that on to other people because you got to live at the edge of it. And I really took that away. It's why I like doing podcasts like this is I have the opportunity to speak with incredibly smart people with you. And it's sort of like my opportunity and duty to then like get that
info as many people as possible, including like clients and non-clients and stuff like that. So grateful to chat with you. I want to take a quick a step back to what I was asking sure. about your yeah. company growth and then making sure you follow through on what you say. Have you had an experience where you changed your mind? Like it's your prerogative to change your mind mm. to actually say, I know I said this and now I'm saying this. And I don't know if the, the, the fact that you're a woman founder complicates that because you just, <laughs> everything is more complicated by being a person of color or a different ethnicity and the fact yeah. that you're a woman. So, <laughs> Have you had that experience and, and how did mm. you do that with your team or just internally? That's a good question. The thing that immediately jumped into mind, which I don't know if it's something where I said one thing and then something else came to be is I think for the pandemic, when we all started January 2020, I don't think any of us truly anticipated what the year was going to be like. And my luckily my co-founder is like a complete paranoid fanatic when it comes to health and diseases and pandemic issues and back in january he was like this wuhan virus is going to be a real thing and we need to be prepared so luckily we were we were more prepared than i would say most but come around march we realized we're going to have to go remote we don't know what the economic impact is going to be of a global pandemic and at the time, you know, I wanted to be as confident and sure to our team as possible. And I said, guys, here in this together, we're going to do the best that we can. I am really confident that we are going to emerge successful on the other side because I did feel confident. I felt confident that we're not going to go out of business. We have a really good model. Like we have run businesses through different crises and market downturns. I was really confident in ultimately our success. And then I would say in early April, we realized we aren't sure what the market environment is going to be like. And this is when things were completely frozen. Clients were doing layoffs. And we said, you know what, we have to be prepared for the worst. And so we took pay cuts at the executive team level. We had to make a couple of furloughs. And we said, we've got to hunker down, preserve cash, embrace for the worst. And at the time, I think it was alarming for people because one, it's like a wake up call to the fact that this might not all be as okay as we thought it was going to be. And in my mind, it wasn't reversing on what I said, but maybe a change in tone that was really alarming for people, especially like, you know, I, I do have a young team and I think, you know, I've been through like, you know, post. 11 and you know 2008 crisis and like lots of layoffs but for a lot of my you know younger team members this is the first real like global crisis that they've been through and it was like a sudden wake-up call that like holy crap like maybe everything is not going to be okay and i think maybe even some people felt like you told me everything was going to be okay but it doesn't sound like it's going to be okay and it's hard as a founder because i want to project confidence and conviction but at the same time, I've got to act with some degree of paranoia to protect the company at the end of the day and preserve as many jobs as we possibly can. And so it's hard because I think this is like the constant tension as a leader, right? It's like you've got to like take some actions that are meant to be protectionary and help folks. But at the same time, you want to reassure your teams and make them feel okay and give them comfort but not also mislead them that everything is truly okay. It's like, you've got to, you've got to kind of bring some degree of a reality check while also providing some comfort. And so I think 
it's hard for, I mean, I'm, I'm a mom too. And like, of course I have like a mothering instinct, which is like, it's all going to be okay. And like, everybody gets like a warm hug and some hot chocolate. But at the same time, as a business owner, I've also got to be really real with folks too. So I don't know if that's a contradiction as much as it's like a natural tension that exists as a founder. So, and I, I, I hope like people have seen that, like all those moves that we made are ultimately what led us to have a really great successful year and keep a lot of people in their jobs and make more money at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, what I, what I take away from that among other things is the need for different leadership styles. As mm. in you might've had that like rah, rah, everything's going to be fine tone here. And I don't think it's like changing. I think it's adapting to say, actually now what we need is assertive leadership. And like, I don't need the permission from anybody. I'm just like, hey, this is what we need. And I need to like steer the ship because we have another group that we work with that the leadership style has changed and they've got several hundred employees. And now the like culture impacts of that have changed. So it's not just the decisions of one, it's that it's sort of floating through. And then you sort of have to deal with it. And then I guess it's like the response. Are people responding to it now? Or is it going to be a thing that like in a year and a half, they're like, wow, it's like, you know it, but mm. does your team know it at those mm. multiple layers to say, hey, that was actually a really good call, but we can't see the forest through the trees right now because we're still in the shit. 2023, we're going to say, wow, it's so good that Bina just like did what she did. And then, <laughs> right. but obviously you're not saying it's hard in the moment. Yeah. Right. Because you're in the shit, you're still on fire and we're going to be in that position for maybe a year or more or whenever you listen to this podcast, we'll see how it goes. So how are you feeling about the future moving forward as a founder in the United States? I always believe that um, in the best possible outcome and that people will come through at the end of the day. So I feel hopeful. I think you always have to operate with some degree of paranoia, which is like, oh my God, like we don't know how long this pandemic is going to rage on, but against that my team has shown, but also I think change that we keep seeing happening so i get that so i'll ask you one question which is really two questions bundled in yeah one. go for it as we move forward it's sort of like we have female leaders male leaders just leaders in general so part of my question is what do you want to tell those people that they can like take away but the other question is what are you looking forward to as your next challenge in leadership what is something that you're right now that you haven't overcome and that you're still like dancing with and grappling with so i'm going to take mm. those two together great question and the answers are probably related the thing that i often say especially to female entrepreneurs is you have to make sacrifices and it kind of sucks because as a as a mom in particular you always feel like you're failing somebody right like I'm not there enough for my team. I'm not there enough for my kids. You know, I'm not there enough as a spouse um, because like you only have so much time in your day. Like you can't show up for everything. So you can't make every, you know, school event. You can't make every meeting. You can't like, it's just impossible, right? So sacrifices have to be made. And I hear a lot from women executives that that feeling of failure like I am not doing enough is so pervasive that we internalize it as women, right? And we almost feel like we have to make a choice. It's either career or family. If I wanna be a good mom, I can't progress in my career because we internalize it and we say, it's because I am not capable 
of being an entrepreneur, of starting my own company and being a good mom. And what I always try and tell people is you have to take that feeling and realize it's not you, it's our circumstances. And accept that like that tension is going to exist, but accept that like, it's not you, it's not like because you're not good at something or because you're not strong enough to be an entrepreneur, recognize that our circumstances have accelerated the expectations about like what it means to be a good mom. You have to send your kids to like a billion extracurriculars and cook some organic lunch boxes and, <laughs> you know, like, you know, microwave meals are bad. And at the same time at work, like work hours have expanded. We're always on, like someone's always calling my phone and demanding a response. And so the demands on women executives have grown. And so I always tell people, it's okay to accept that failure what your definition of failure is, it's okay because you're not actually failing. Everything that you make show up to is a win and you should be really proud of yourself. And I say that especially to female founders because sometimes you look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, what am I doing? How <laughs> can I really do this? So I say accept that. And I would say for me, I think the thing that I've got to probably the challenge for me as a leader is the ability to focus on me and like self-care. I think some of the things that happen as, especially as a working woman is you give everything of yourself to your company and to your family. That sometimes the you in the equation is like totally lost. And so for me as a leader, it's saying like, okay, I need to find that me time so I can focus on projects that are for me personally, personal, you know, passions and ambitions outside of just my company and my family. And so finding the headspace to do that is one of my big New Year's resolutions for, for the year. Well, I, I could see both of those fighting each other at the same time. <laughs> Absolutely. Which is the constant battle. And I think all, all yeah. business owners, entrepreneurs, and then pile on the situation around COVID wherever you're at is that there's those external things, but you know, it's nowhere, nowhere to go, but up. And there's no actual thing is failure. It's not a failure of self. It's if anything, a failure of action, but Bina, how can people get a hold of you? How can they learn more about vested? How can they get engaged with you and your community? Sure. Um, you can visit our website, which is www.fullyvested.com. You can find me on Twitter at Bina S Kim. You can also find me on LinkedIn. So Hopefully I get to, to chat to any one of you sometime soon. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bina. It's been a pleasure having you on the show and just like great to connect with you one-on-one. It was fun. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest today, Bina Kim, who is the president and co-founder of Vested. Thanks so much for joining us. If you have a female founder, there's a founder in your life that needs to take that next step in their life. Be sure to share them this podcast and episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And this is Anthony Taylor from the Strategy and Leadership Podcast, joined by Bina Kim. Thanks again, Bina. Lovely to be here. We'll see you next time, everybody. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. Before you go, I wanted to make sure that you knew about our signature course that will help you better align your team and get them bought into your strategic plan. It's presented really simply that whether you're a seasoned veteran or brand new to strategic planning, it'll help you better understand it, it'll help your team think more strategically, and it'll help you better prioritize and set goals. Ultimately, it's going to give you a plan that you can execute successfully. Because you have no idea how many plans that I see that look good, but are missing key components to make them successful. And we cover all of those missteps in the course. On top of all the video training, you'll get access to all of our workbooks and access to our knowledge base and community. 
Of course, it's only $4.95, and you can get instant access to all of the videos. Plus, you can use the code PODCAST for $100 off. Course comes with a 100% money back guarantee. If you don't get value from the course, let us know and we'll give you all of your money back. So go to smestrategy.net slash course, use the code podcast for $100 off. And I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to support you and your team in getting alignment and moving your strategic plan forward. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next time.